You're listening to Beyond the Measure, episode 32. Listen as I, a young choir director, and my husband, a young composer, interview other music educators in order to gain insight into their own success in the classroom. We have a lot to learn, and we want you to learn with us. No matter your age, ensemble, or experience, this is the ideal podcast for music educators, composers, and students alike. So join us as we go Beyond the Measure. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Measure. Uh, I am your co-host, Christian Fortner, and I am unfortunately not joined by my beautiful co-host, Kara. Uh, At the time of recording this, she is actually uh, back in the swing of things, getting prepared for the school year. We're recording this uh, in uh, late July, early August, Uh, but so she is already, she's already getting going on all of that. So she's not with me today, but uh, we're so excited that you're listening today. Uh, If you're not familiar with this podcast, this is a podcast where uh, both myself and my wife, Kara, we interview music educators um, just to learn uh, the ins and outs of what they do in the classroom. Uh, so whether you're a young music educator or you've been teaching for years, uh, we hope that there is something that you can learn from this. Uh, today, we actually have a very special guest on the show, uh, Mr. Stephen Cox. Uh, he is a Grammy award-winning music educator. Uh, and I'll be honest, before I I, um, I scheduled this interview with Stephen, he was recommended to us by Jason Jones. Um, and um, I didn't even know you could get a Grammy as a music educator. And so it was actually really cool uh, to find that out. And we actually talk a little bit about how that works. And it's actually a pretty recent thing that's gotten started. And it's pretty cool. Uh, he talks about it in the interview. Um, but Stephen has uh, done lots of different clinics and he's a public speaker and he has a YouTube channel, uh, which will be linked in the show notes as well. And so um, just really, really good guy that is all about um thinking about how we can improve the systems that we have set up in music education and make it better for us and for our students. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to sharing this conversation with you. Uh, I want to read you his biography just so you can kind of get a little bit more background and then we'll jump right into the interview. So Stephen Cox is a passionate music educator who grew up in rural Texas and now teaches at the Fox Tech campus in the heart of San Antonio. Recognized by the Recording Academy and Grammy Museum as the Grammy Music Educator of the Year 2022, Mr. Cox's student groups have been recognized at the Midwest Clinic Texas Bandmasters Association, as well as winners of the 3A Outstanding Performance Series from the Association of Texas Small School Bands. Additionally, Mr. Cox is a passionate advocate for music education for all and travels as a clinician and speaker on the topics of rural education, music education technology, student autonomy, and popular music education. Um, So yeah, we talk a lot about uh, how he incorporates not your typical standard uh, music practices, one of those being pop music, and uh, how we can incorporate that into the classroom and really use that as an avenue to inspire students to become passionate about music, not just as something they casually listen to, but something they can really pursue for the rest of their life. Um, And so, and, and and that just it's so nice because it calls students to a deeper uh, relationship with music uh, than what they think possible when we acknowledge that what they're interested in is still very important when it comes to music and not just the classically trained side of things. Another cool thing is that he actually spent a lot of his time at Eastland, which is a small town just east of Abilene where we live. Um, And we didn't even realize this until after the interview was over, but uh, we were good friends with somebody by the name of Cody Hutchison, who um, I studied composition with at HSU. And he was actually one of uh, Stephen Cox's students. Um, And I think he actually mentions Cody, not by name, uh, but in the interview about he was one of his students that he really helped introduced to you know jazz and and get passionate about piano and music and um, just a good example of someone that was really passionate about that so that's kind of a funny cool connection that we discovered afterward uh, so Cody if you're listening to this that just means that we're gonna have to get you on the show sometime soon so <laughs> I'm sure you'll be hearing from me sometime but um, so without further ado um, I'll quit talking and uh, get right into the interview so excited for it today uh, I think you're gonna enjoy it so without further ado here is my interview with Mr. Stephen Cox Well, Stephen, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. We really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this conversation. 
Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So I, I was uh, looking at your your website, and, and first of all, I got to mention that uh, we were you were recommended to us as a guest um, by Jason Jones, uh, who is uh, band director in San Angelo, and uh, he recommended you to us, and and so looked you up, and um, saw you've done. I mean, you have a whole swath of uh, you know like YouTube videos and lectures and clinics that you've done. A lot of them are out there online. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about what you do as a music educator? whether that's in the classroom or all of those other things that you have out there? Yeah, sure. Well, and Jason Jones is a great guy. He's been one of my mentors. We went to the same college. And so people, when I was trying to figure out what I was doing, recommended him. So when I have like major career decisions, he's on my list of people that I call um, because he's wonderful. So I, I appreciate the recommendation. Uh, so I um, I grew up in a little bitty town, like a little bitty rural town. Um, and, you know, just fell in love with music. Uh, I had some family influences, like my grandfather. Uh, he was a World War II and Korea vet, but involuntarily. He was a double draftee. He served 11 months in World War II. If he'd served a year, he wouldn't have been eligible to be drafted again. And when I was growing up, he'd mail me mixtapes like he, his, of his big band music and stuff. And I fell in love with jazz and big band music. My dad's an amateur bluegrass musician. Um, so he plays guitar and you know he's a campfire bluegrass guitarist. He probably knows six or seven chords, but he plays all the time and you know he lives for it. So he was always playing mm -hmm. when we were growing up. Um, and whenever I started band, uh, you know, I picked my instrument for the worst reason in the world. Uh, basically, my mother had been a bass clarinet player, my dad had been a trombone player, and they had divorced, and I didn't want either one of them to think I favored them, so I played the saxophone right there in the middle. You know, I'm like, that sounds like a cross between the trombone and the bass clarinet. That seems, you know, um, not a great reason. Uh, and then a couple years later, I uh, wound up picking up the clarinet, literally picked one up at a pawn shop. It was the only instrument in the pawn shop I could afford. I went in thinking I was going to buy a saxophone, but they were too expensive. And I'm like, how different could it be? They're very different, <laughs> you know, but I, I fell in love with the clarinet. And so I, I had to become a music major you know, and, and I did, and I was convinced I wasn't going to be a teacher. Uh, but all these very smart people, smarter than me, realized that actually I'd, I'd probably really enjoy doing that. So they kept steering me in that direction. And by the time I graduated, I fell in love with it. I started teaching, and I was terrible. Just like I think most people who start teaching. Like I was so bad. <laughs> you know, I, uh, like I had no idea how to bring out the best in students. And, you know, I was a good clarinet player, but I had no idea what a band needed to sound good. You know, there was a lot that made that kind of tricky. And so I took, and, uh, you know, after a couple of years kind of struggling, I got in with a great mentor and I, that was in the town of Eastland. So my third year teaching, I moved to Eastland, Texas, and I wound up teaching there for 10 years. Um, and had an amazing experience. So this is like, you know, a small school band program. When we started out, we had about 37 kids in the high school band, about 50 in mm -hmm. the uh, seventh and eighth grade band. And in Eastland, every single beginner in the school district takes band. Every sixth grader takes band, uh, which is a, an interesting topic unto itself. Yeah. Um, you know, so there'd be about 80 to 90 beginners each year, uh, whether they wanted to or not. And then, uh, you know, after a couple years, the high school director, uh, he retired. He was a great mentor. His name is Terry Everts. And I took his job. He left a perfectly good job sitting there. Took it, hired my friend Jet Lawrence, who is teaching in the Abilene area and who you should interview because he's an amazing uh, band director. And uh, we became like best friends you know, uh, hanging out all the time, you know, and the band program grew. There were, you know, and uh, basically everything doubled in size, which was awesome. And, uh, you know, we had about a ton of adventures doing that full marching band schedule, you know, summer band every single weekend in the fall. Um, you know, some really neat things happened. We wound up doing a clinic uh, at the Midwest Clinic with Willie Owens, um, you know, made a trip to state marching contest, had some success in OPS and really just, uh, you know, cut our teeth together in this amazing little town. Um, and so anyway, so most of my time I've spent in rural, rural Texas and rural schools and small schools. Um, and I think that's a special place. It's the place that I grew up, you know, currently I'm teaching in an inner city school district. 
Uh, and I'm in a very unique situation where I teach concert band and jazz band and then a huge popular music program. I, I started this because there weren't very many kids in the band program at the school that I was I was coming to. Um, and we went from like 40 people, 40 to 60 people signed up at the beginning of last year to 250 is what I'm looking oh at for goodness. the fall, Wow, which is a, a problem of my own making, <laughs> but really exciting. Yeah. You know, so... Uh, most of my time has been spent in rural education, but now I'm doing uh, inner city district. Uh, I've always done jazz stuff because that's just me. Um, and now I'm spending a lot of time in popular music education. So hopefully you can cut out half of what I said. Um, <laughs> but that's that's the basic story. No, no, that's great. That's great. And and what what school are you at currently? Yeah, so I'm on the Fox Tech campus, which is the oldest public school campus in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, and it's basically, there's actually three schools on the campus. So they're like in district charters. So it's the oldest public school and it's still all public schools, but they've kind of loosened up the rules to, you know, uh, just create some really neat opportunities for, uh, these inner city kids. Wow. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. It's, uh, we were, we were talking, actually it was on, uh, when we interviewed Jason Jones, uh, me, both, uh, Kara, my wife and I, we, we were talking to him a lot about the difference, you know, how, how drastic of a difference there is cu- culturally between, you know, your, your large city schools versus your smaller rural schools. And, uh, both of us are originally from, uh, larger suburban areas. She's from DFW. I'm from Austin. Um, and then even coming to Abilene, which is rural, but it's not necessarily as small as a lot of the other, you know, schools in the area. And, um, but even for that was a big change for us. We've really grown to appreciate that. And so I think it's really cool seeing, you know, educators like you and like Jason who have gone from, you've grown up in a smaller, you know, smaller school background. And now who you are teaching inner city San Antonio, like that's, that's huge. Um, or vice versa, uh, having that adaptability and, and growth from that. Well, you know, the kids are kids wherever. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like they're, you know, teenagers are teenagers. Uh, my inner city San Antonio students and my rural Eastern students, they have far, far more in common than what they don't. But the environments are different. So like in Eastland, everybody was just like right there. Like, you know, everyone drove five minutes to get to school. Um, at my district here, some kids get up and they dr- ride city buses for an hour to get to school. You know, uh, the um, the day-to-day things in Eastland were really easy. Like everything was just right there, a little bitty town, everybody knew each other. But if you want to do anything big, that was really hard. You know, just an away game is an hour, two hours, three hours away. That's not usually what you're doing inside of a city. Meanwhile, in a city, the day-to-day things are really hard, but the big things are easy. Literally every experience you could have in life is within 20 minutes of wherever you are. But, you know, it takes 20 minutes to get across the street practically. And so um, it's very different. In my small school, you know, if I had a finance problem, I called Mary. If I had a maintenance problem, I called Brian. You know, in the big district, if I have any type of problem, I fill out a web form and maybe in a week or two people get back to me, right? Oh, wow, yep. Um, you know, so it's it, the environments are different, but the kids are the same. And and music is mostly the same, too. Right. Like a whole note gets four beats most of the time in most places. Yeah. Oh, great point. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all for the same same purpose and same uh, avenue of doing that. Um, one, one thing I do have to mention to our listeners, for anyone that's not familiar with with you, is um, you you actually have a Grammy uh, as a music educator. You received a Grammy, and uh, I, I'm sure you you get questions about it all the time. And so we won't spend too much time on that. But I do just want to know kind of how that came about and kind of just what that was like. Cause I'll be honest, I don't think I even knew beforehand that you could even get a Grammy as a, as a music educator, but I think that's awesome. So it's been around for a little less than 10 years. And basically it's a collaboration between the recording Academy and the Grammy museum. And it is the only award that's a collaboration between those two arms of basically the same machine. So basically, they wanted to promote music education and music educators. And the thing that the Recording Academy has that is its most valuable asset is the recognition of the word Grammy. So like if you say the word Grammy, people immediately know what that is. If you say, you know, literally any type of recognition you can have in the profession of teaching, it requires like a paragraph of explanation about what it is. 
but not the Grammy. And they knew this. And so they created the system to recognize as many music programs and music educators across the country as they could using this program. And they're really serious about it. And until I got really into it, I didn't really understand how serious they were about it and completely authentically. But essentially, anyone can nominate anyone. So that's step number one. And at that point, you get a notification and you go and you fill out a quiz that's got, you know, maybe 50 or 60 questions on it. Okay. At this point, if you want to say you were nominated for a Grammy, you could do that 100 percent cool um but they then you know they get a couple thousand people a year that apply and that questionnaire narrows it down electronically to a few hundred okay um at this point you get a notification that you're a quarter finalist and a press release goes out to every major news outlet in the united states so every year there's a few hundred local newspapers and television stations that run this article about their band programs their orchestra programs their elementary music programs they show up and they film and they celebrate all the amazing things that are happening inside of our music classrooms and every year that happens in hundreds of schools because of this quarter finalist list you then have to make videos it includes a teaching video where you film your class it includes uh, a video of like, uh, you know, what's your uh, proudest moment as a teacher? And what do you do for fine arts advocacy? Uh, and you include student testimonials and things. It's, it's kind of a portfolio kind of project. You send those back and then they look through all, you know, few hundred of these uh, with like professionals in the, mu in the music world and in the music education world, which you're talking about hundreds of hours worth of work to go through all of this. At which point they then have a semi-finalist list. They publish a 25. Again, all those news stories happen. And followed by a finalist list, followed by a winner. And whoever the winner is gets to go to the Grammys. You spend the entire week there. Uh, you get $10,000. Your booster club gets $10,000. Um, and, uh, you're, you're celebrated there, like authentically, you know, when, when I went to the Grammy experience, it was in Las Vegas because of COVID. So it wasn't 2020, it was 2021. Um, but we were still having all those big flare ups, right? So they moved it. And I mean, I got to speak with the CEO of the Grammy Museum and of the Recording Academy. I got to speak to their board. You know, they they sat me at the Grammys like, you know, you've got the stage, then you've got all the tables where all the celebrities are at. And then you've got all this seating where a bunch of other celebrities are, but they don't get to be at a table. They're like there. And then you've got like the balcony full of people like just, you know, stadium seating. Well, they put us down at the tables where the celebrities are, at the same table as the CEO of Sony Music. Wow. Wow. Um, and so, like, they were, they could have put me in the parking lot, and I would have been really proud. Sure. And the whole time I was there, every time I spoke to somebody, they would tell me about how important their music teachers were to them. And, like, not even the people you'd think. Like, you know, yes, the musicians I met would talk about their music teachers, but also you talk to a lawyer, and they'd be like, oh, my gosh, I'm in copyright law because my choir program was so wonderful, and I knew I didn't want to be a professional musician, but I spend all my time protecting the rights of professional musicians. Um, and just so authentically. And that was an amazing experience. And it meant so much to my community to be seen in that way for what we were doing in the middle of nowhere, Texas, to be recognized on a national stage and for our students, you know, them talking about our school and stuff to be on national television. So anyway, uh, it's it's pretty cool. And if you're listening to this nominations are open throughout a lot of the year in the spring and just go nominate your teachers. There's, I mean, it costs nothing to do it. It's very easy. And just getting that notification that someone thought that they saw that and they say, you know, this recognition, this national recognition, that's how I think of my teacher. Like that's pretty amazing in and of itself. So anyway, that's incredible. And, and that now that you mentioned it, I, I, I thought we can, we'll put that link, uh, for, we'll look that link up in the, and put it in the description. So, uh, so if you're listening, you can just go down click that and nominate one of your, one of your, um, most influential teachers that you've had. Um, I think that's an incredible program. Like you said, just bringing that attention and recognition to, uh, uh, music educators. And I think it's so cool. How you said that they, they, they put you up on a pedestal because not just cause they had to, but because they understood the importance of that because they in turn were impacted by that. So I think that's incredible. Let's take a quick break from this episode so that I can tell you about this podcast's primary sponsor, Christian Fortner music. That's right. My own music business. If you're looking for fresh new music ranging anywhere from middle school choir to college level orchestra, there's a good chance I'll have it. And while I am a young composer, my music library is constantly growing as I write more and more. 
The way I sell the music is a little different from other music retailers as well, which I think you'll like. Instead of purchasing a minimum number of individual copies or parts, you'll purchase one PDF that includes all parts in it, of which you can print out as many times as you need. That way, you don't have to stress about purchasing a new part that you misplaced or feel the shame of only purchasing 10 copies for your ensemble of 40. Come on, we've all done it before. Now, if you'd like a sample of what my music is like, you can actually receive a completely free piece of music from a certain selection when you sign up for my mailing list. Plus, you'll be a part of other fun perks, such as receiving monthly updates from me and early access to podcast episodes such as this one. If that's something you'd be interested in receiving, you can do so at christianfortnermusic.com slash mailings. Just from looking at your website and kind of watching some of your YouTube videos that you have out there, um, you actually did a, a, a clinic at, uh, at TMEA this past year uh, in uh, February of 2023. And um, I was listening to it and it was really good. And I, what I really like from what I've, you know, been, what I heard from that and looking at your other videos is you're, you're always thinking ahead, right? What is the future going to look like and how can that inform how we do our jobs now? And so um, I kind of just want to hear your thoughts on those kinds of things. And uh, before this, we kind of talked about a few different topics we could we could look at. And um, one that really kind of struck my attention was um, you said you, you've done a lot of research in uh, about sustainability as a profession. Uh, and we actually just recently interviewed Frank Eichner, who is uh, uh, director of choral activities at University of Texas Permian Basin. Um, he's now going to be at University of Central Arkansas. But um, we, we talked a lot about with him about sustainability just as a professional, uh, as a person um, in this kind of position. But now I kind of want to hear your thoughts on the profession as a whole. Where do you think that's going and, and what is that going to look like and what should we do going forward with that? Yeah. So when we talk about the profession, um, I think a lot about about band because obviously that's where I've spent a lot of my time. But I, I think there are a lot of concerns for all of our large music ensembles uh, and especially in states like Texas, where a lot of things about what we do are incredibly intense comparatively. So, you know, I, I when I look at the next 40 years, I think there are serious concerns about whether or not 40 years from now, there will still be large ensemble music making in most schools, or will there be in more schools or will it be in less schools? And I think about this a lot. Um, and so I think it helps to, to kind of look at the things that I think really, you know, dictate whether or not something is sustainable or not. So the first one I would have is, you know, when I talk to teachers, about this topic, I talk about, you know, maintenance versus, uh, you know, like exploitation. <laughs> so every, every single week, when you go back to your classroom, do you feel equally energized or excited? Or does each week you feel more depleted and then thank God it's finally Thanksgiving yeah. and okay, if I can only make it till Christmas and oh good spring breaks in a few weeks, you know, or do you actually feel equally excited about your job and happy to do it most of the time? I mean, we're all going to have weeks that we're off, but for a lot of teachers every week, they feel more and more wore down. Like they're, they're the way that they're expected to do their job. It's not replenishing to them. And I mean, people that love teaching and love students, uh, because that goes, you know, if, if you don't love students, if you don't like people, like, please find another career because you're going to hate this one. <laughs> but if you, if you love students, there's a lot of energy that can be gained by just seeing that you're making a difference. However, the systems that we create are either going to facilitate sustainability or they're going to facilitate our own destruction. And a lot of the problems that we have in music education, they're the same problems we have everywhere else. Like we have a problem in our greater society, and then we manage to recreate that exact same problem in our education systems. And then we take the same problems in our education systems and recreate them in our music education systems. And that's kind of the thing that I see that worries me about whether or not we can keep all of this going. Now, you know, I think I experienced an extreme of this in teaching in specifically a highly uh, quote unquote successful rural school program. I actually think these can be some of the most intense programs for the directors, especially is if you're in a, a, an intense large school suburban program, your resources look very different. Um, you know, the number of directors is very different. So you might have more students, but a lot of times you have a better student to teacher ratio. Um, or, you know, 
a lot of times in uh, like if you're a high school director in a 5A or a 6A school, you're probably not going to all of the middle school events. And if you're a middle school director, you're definitely not going to all the high school events. But if you're in a rural position like what I was, you're actually doing both those jobs all the yeah, time. Yeah. You know, so our calendar would look like, you know, summer would start uh, and we'd be doing a full intense, you know, uh, six to nine to 12 hours a day of band, you know, all through uh, late July and until school started. And then we'd turn around and we'd rehearse every morning and we'd be there, you know, every Monday night and we wouldn't do our full eight hours, you know, as though that were like something you should aim for and not like a limit we put on ourselves because people were rehearsing all the time. Yeah. Um, and then we would go to, you know, our high school all region and then our middle school all region and then all region jazz on the weekends that we weren't going to our four or five marching contest. And then we'd have a high school concert and then we'd have a middle school concert and then we'd go to, you know, the concerts for the all region, this and that. And you got to look at it. I think we were doing about 90 outside of school events a year. And then like for me, I want to go play at the nursing home. I want to go show up at the civic events. I think those are way more important yeah. than all the contests that we're required to go to. And I found myself in a position where I'm like, this is too much. It's too much for me, too much for the students, too much for the other directors. I guess we can stop helping the elderly, or I guess we can stop doing the canned food drive. But, you know, Lord knows we're not going to stop this endless rehearsal so that we can be competitive, right? That is an extreme that Texas represents. And I think anywhere that's trying to be competitive experiences this very high intensity schedule that just like regular teaching, you know, if you're not doing outside of school events, you're still probably there from like 7.15 until 5, which is way more than like a nine to five job, you know, when you get down to it. Like you probably like you, a lot of teachers I talk to, they have like a 25 or a 30 minute lunch. If you're in prison, you get an hour lunch, you know, <laughs> like uh it's it's remarkable kind of the basic schedule and then we've piled on a lot of things i don't know that that's actually sustainable i know lots and lots of people that it clearly isn't sustainable for that have had to leave the profession they've had to do it and it's like it's fine when you're 22 and you got nothing else going on but then you hit your 30s and you've got kids and you've got family expectations and it's like how do i do this and there are some people that keep going the full route but we lose a lot of people so that, that's a sign of something I think is unsustainable. Um, you know, uh, anytime that you're violating natural systems, like I think we should probably be aiming for the adults and the children and everybody to sleep eight hours a night. But a lot of our schedules, you know, involve us being out until midnight or later one night and then showing back up at 6 a.m. the next morning to do it all again. That's not sustainable. You know, that might can happen once, but if it's happening, you know, a couple times a month, it's probably not actually a sustainable system because it's violating our natural needs for things, you know? So I guess, uh, you know, the things that I see that are the big hallmarks is, uh, this is what I think is the, the, the biggest things. Cultural relevance for our large ensembles is not very high. Like, you know, even when I was growing up, I think there were, like, there were way more choirs. Like, every church had a choir. Now it's kind of rare to go to a church and there be a choir. Uh, there's, you know, I don't know, I don't have data on it, but I don't feel like there's a lot more community bands than there used to be, um, or community choirs. Uh, and you don't see it on TV. Like it's, you know, for, for me in the band world, like when we started putting band programs in all of our rooms, there were bands everywhere. Like literally there were jobs that were, you show up at community and you start a community band and you're paid, you know, civically to, to start bands. Some of our early school band directors, that's what they did. They were civic band directors, but that's not a job now. That's, you know, like a hobby for a professor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like I really worry about that a lot. Um, let me see what other really sad things can I talk about? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, for us in the band world, I'm worried about access to precious materials, the metals we make instruments out of the quality of instruments you buy now, it, the prices are higher and the quality is lower than what it was, you know, in the seventies or eighties, even like the precious materials are harder to get. Um, that's why they're called precious materials. Um, I talked to uh, the the man who invented the P-Bone, and that's what he was doing. He wasn't trying to create this amazing instrument for elementary students that was affordable. He was trying to invent a trombone because he loves trombone, and he's worried that we're not going to have metal to make trombones in 20 years. So there, there's things like that that I think are really serious. Um, I think maybe the worst one, though, is that we are doing all these models that do not 
go very well into lifelong musicianship. So, uh, you know, I, I, in fact, a lot of us have just seeded the argument. Like we don't even talk like people can make music all their lives anymore. You know, we go, well, maybe a couple of, but we just assume most of them are not going to make music, but that's cultural. You know, we could live in a society where 80% of people make music every week and feel like they're able to. But I think we've invented systems that actually push people away from amateur music making and diminish the value of lifelong musicianship. Like I know a lot of people in our profession that would really sneer at my dad and his six bluegrass chords, but I think he's an amazing example of what music can do over a lifetime. And so... Um, anyway, that's a lot. I have a lot of thoughts about how we can address this, you know, like for example, you know, take cultural relevance. I think we could very easily form more community bands. We saw this in Eastland about the time um, I was getting ready to leave that community. One of my former students who was now a professor started a community band. And I saw all these former students who had not touched their instruments since high school, get them back out and start practicing because wow. they had an outlet. You know, that was amazing. Uh, you know, they, they took, you know, the band world and brought it into the community. Now, th what they did in Eastland's not going to change that. But if we did that in every community that has a music ed program, and we saw endorsing community music making as a part of our mission, well, I, we would change the world. That would actually happen. Um, you know, now, if our schedules are so busy that we all are exhausted and can't do it, that's a different, different story. Exactly. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, that's a struggle that Kara and I have. Uh, I mean, we, we have a, uh, we have a couple really good, uh, community ensembles here in Abilene. Uh, one of them being Chorus Abilene. Um, they, they actually, the organization has multiple, um, ensembles that we've participated in before. And we, we've actually, those of y'all listening, we've interviewed Abigail Payne, D. Romines, and Soraya Peters, who are all, uh, directors, um, directly affiliated with Chorus Abilene and, uh, but there have been times, and in fact, this past year was a, was a good example. This past spring, uh, the classical chorus ensemble, we we just, Kara and I just had to say, man, we're, we just can't, it's not that we don't want to, but we just, the, the, the time commitment on top of everything else that we're already having to do for our actual jobs. And, uh, especially for Kara, for her music job, you know, it's, it's just makes it a little too hard. And, um, it, and so you, I like how you're, you're illustrating how, all of these different aspects all kind of fit together. Uh, and so what I want to know is, do you, do you see any areas where you feel like it's going in a good direction or is it more of a, um, I know I've heard you from what you've said online and at, at these clinics is, uh, it seems to me that there are a lot of tools out there, um, that are, that are kind of coming to the forefront of people's minds that could really be helpful, but it's, it's more of a thing of, we need to be open to change and to willing to use these kinds of tools. I mean, I mean, how do you, what, what would you say to that? Yeah. Um, I think that the problems are, they're both cultural and they're philosophical. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this is gonna sound fancy, but I'm, I'm not actually very fancy. So let me, let me be specific. I think that we are distracted by so many things in our profession and, and in our you know, our societal lives too, that take away from the things that really matter. So I love music. Like I love music. And the reason that I make music is because I have to, <laughs> I don't have a choice. It brings me so much joy. I do it for the music making and the music making only. But I feel like we don't believe that students will also experience this. And so we've contrived these many, many contraptions and inventions and competitions to get them to produce results for us, because that's how we make our careers. But those things may or may not at all be related to a love of music making. And there's a reasonable amount of research that suggests that when you introduce extrinsic motivators, that you don't just, you know motivate the students in another way, but you actually work against the development of intrinsic motivation. Um, and so I, I don't think there's a tool that can fix this. Uh, there, there's a lot of really cool things coming up and I'd love to talk about that. But I think we have to decide that making music for the sake of making music is the most important reason. We teach music because being a human being and experiencing and making music makes your life way better. We don't do it to improve math scores. We don't do it to teach the kids yeah. all of these soft skills. Those things might be side benefits, but you can learn all those things from soccer. Yeah. We teach music because making music like improves your life to the extent that nobody should be without it. 
And that, uh, for me, I, I really believe in music education for all. So it's really important to me that band programs continue to exist because there are some kids that are band kids and that choir programs continue to exist because there are some people that are meant to sing in a choir. But none of these things are enemies of one another. Um, and so, but we've developed that. And a lot of it comes from this need to compete, this need to uh, build our careers by winning and things. And again, those things are all cool in their own respects, but they don't really have anything to do with the actual music making. Like, I, I'll give you an example. I started this pop music program, and it's been so fascinating to me because I have these kids that are playing pop music instruments, drum, guitar, uh, and keyboard and bass primarily, although other things sneak in there from time to time. And a lot of my wind players have started doing this too. And they are playing music that they listen to and they do all these things really, really well. And it occurred to me, oh, it's because they actually listen to the music they're making. Most of our large ensemble students don't. Like, if we're going to be honest, they don't go home and listen to Mozart. Yep. Like, they've got iPods that look like everybody else's, right? Um, but I also have kids that they would never participate in something that resembled a rock and roll band, and they want to be in that clarinet section, right? We need all of these things, but we constantly fight each other. I mean, I, I, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I f spent years fighting the start of a choir program in Eastland. Because I was looking at the numbers of kids in my marching band and I was looking at the data and I pulled up every single school in our classification that had a band and had a choir. And it just looked like it was going to be too much for us to be able to maintain our current levels. I regret that. I wish I'd started the choir myself. I, you know, I wish I'd said, let us do it. Let, this isn't the band building. This is the music building and been open to that. You know, but I had all these external pressures that were working on me. See, as a band director, your job is to produce a band and the best band possible. As a music educator, your goal is to instill a lifelong passion for music making. Wow. Those are two different things. Yeah. Yeah. And they play at odds with each other. And so I actually think, I think that's the problem. I think it's a reflection of the standardized testing movement and accountability movement throughout education, where instead of meeting the kids where they are, we have to somehow standardize them all, you know. Uh, and, okay, I have a theory. So orchestras are failing, we think, right? Like I, all the time I read articles about orchestras yeah, failing. Yeah. And I think the reason for this is that they didn't let in the saxophone, <laughs> which of course I would think is a saxophone player. <laughs> they said the saxophone was invented. It's a perfectly great instrument. It gets lots of acclaim. It's, it becomes a worldwide instrument. The orchestras say no. The orchestra said, we don't evolve anymore. We're done. This is what an orchestra is and nothing else. And yeah, like a composer can one-off write for saxophone. There'll be something, but we're not going to make it a standard instrument because we've decided what the orchestra is. Well, up until that point, new instruments came into the orchestra all the time. Yeah, yeah. We played the clarinet, not the shalomo. You know, we're like, the shalomo is a terrible instrument. Like the clarinet's way better. You know, we, we play the trombone, not the sack butt. We're like, we can't say the word sack butt anymore. So we invented the trombone. You know, we kept evolving. Well, in the band world, we've done the same thing. We've decided this is what a band is. And our rubrics say what a band should sound like, what they should look like, what the instrument should be. We boxed in all these rules and we stopped evolving. Um, and I think once things stop evolving, that's when they start the death march. That's when they're destined to die, um, you know. And I, that's, that's what my concern is, is we have to be open for these things to evolve and to change. We have to bring the focus back to music making for the sake of music making. And I, I tell you, people do not believe that kids will do it for that. They really believe that you have to punish them or you have to reward them and bribe them and all these things. And you don't. Like, you don't have to do that. I mean, yeah, if the kid has absolutely zero interest in something and you have no way to reach them, I guess you could do that. But what's the point? Because then as soon as you stop giving them rewards or punishing them, they're never going to make music again. Yeah, no, no, I think you're exactly right. And I want to know, well, well, first of all, I want to say from my own experience, you know, I, I, I was definitely more on the nerdy side of the spectrum when it came to music growing up, because I didn't, I didn't listen to, you know, classical music, quote unquote, but I, I loved and loved, loved, loved uh, movie soundtracks, right? Uh, and so I didn't listen to pop music or anything like that, or rock and roll that a lot of other students would listen to. I, I, I still don't know a majority of the, the well-known artists from the 2010s, 2000s when I was growing up, but um, 
you know, even, even as someone that listened to, um, you know, movie soundtracks, that's still not necessarily the fully main focus of, uh, you know, classical training and education. Um, you get a lot of John Williams and that's about it. <laughs> and, uh, which is great, but like, even for someone like me, uh, there was still a lot of disconnect there in terms of, of rep. And, um, obviously there is a place for, uh, you know, that the sort of classical training, but, uh, as, as an example that I'll say, uh, one of my favorite scores of all time is how to train your dragon by John Powell. And, um, I just ordered the, uh, I just got the full score, uh, the full legit score, uh, that I ordered online. This is one of the first scores that I actually, and I'm a composer, right? I like orchestral music. I like to write orchestral music. This is one of the first scores where I excitedly got the score, sat down, opened it up and started analyzing the music. Uh, on my own will, right? Because <laughs> it was like, this is something that, that I'm really, that I love and that I'm passionate about. And, um, and it just so happens that that's something that still has a lot of, you know, classical material in it, but there is something to be said about allowing students to study what they love, even if it doesn't quite line up with our perception of what that should be. Uh, which leads me to my next question. What would you say to the program directors, whether it's, you know, college, high school, whatever, um, about, I've heard a lot of the discussion about there's classical training and then there's just like your, your contemporary pop rock, kind of what you're saying. Uh, and, and that, it kind of seems to be kind of looked down upon. Um, what would you say to, to those that kind of seem closed off to, to opening up that, that realm in, in the classroom? Yeah. Um, this is, this is an interesting thing because you're exactly right. Um, I mentioned the Grammy stuff. Not a single person in the pop music world would have dared say that music education wasn't important. But all the music educators, huh. you know, the established people, they're like, pop music is stupid and wow. I wouldn't listen to that and rap yep. is crap and whatever else. And it's like <laughs> that that just hurts all of us. It just hurts all of us. Like literally walk up to a student who's absolutely passionate about music and you tell them the type of music they like sucks, but the type of music you like is real music and they should care about it. And you've closed them off to the world of classical music for the rest of their lives. Yep. I truly believe that when people develop a passion for music, they will discover all music and they will find the value within these different things. So I, I you know, I think it's a big mistake to put down popular music, to put down the music of the kids. <laughs> you know, I, I think there's nothing you could actually do that's more damaging as a music educator than to do that. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, their job is they want to instill a love of music to children, but you walk in the hallways and they already have a love of music. They've all got on their headphones and they're, they're listening to music constantly. They're all, you know, half the kids are wearing Nirvana t-shirts for some reason, right? Like they, they love music. And if you don't use that as a music educator, you are losing the number one tool you have for inspiring them and empowering them to actually be music makers. So I don't care. Like, again, you know, my dad was an amateur bluegrass musician, so I give bluegrass a hard time. But if I, I have a kid that wants to become a really great bluegrass banjo player, I'm going to do everything I can to help them in that mission, right? That requires flexibility. But even just being open to letting the kids make, well, here, I'm going to get right into this. So uh, a lot of my, the things I think about are informed by a whole body of science called self-determination theory. Um, and it's really the the most current science of motivation. And there's been a lot of books that have been written about it. Um, one of them that came out recently was a book called Drive by Daniel Pink that a lot of people might have read. You know, there's a lot of books by Alfie Cohn and just so many other writers that really go into self-determination theory. But basically, what self-determination theory says is that we, we all know that we have physical needs like food, clothing, shelter. You know, we need those things. We have to have sleep. We have these physical needs. And if those needs are not met, we're just not going to be happy or motivated like it's going to take over our lives, right? But self-determination theory says we also have base psychological needs, three needs in particular, that if these needs are not met, we're not going to be motivated, we're not going to be excited, we're not going to be able to cope. We'll have negative life consequences because of this. Those three needs are as follows. One is competence. We have to feel like we're capable of what's being asked. Now, I think about this through a band lens. If I have a kid who's not very good at their instrument and they don't feel like they're getting any better, they're not going to stay in the band program. They are going to leave. They're going to quit with very few exceptions. 
You know, I'm sure most music teachers have experienced that. Like kids will only allow themselves to be the worst player in the room for so long, usually. Especially if we go out of our way to make it obvious by like, I don't know, making them publicly play in front of everyone and then sit in specialized seating based on how bad they are, Um, which is a common music education (laughs) practice that does everything it can to run as many kids out of that band and make everybody else more competitive, right? So, you know, competence is a complicated thing. And that has to do with us helping students move at their own pace, take ownership for their learning and look back at how they're doing, right? So uh, in addition to competence, there's relatedness. Relatedness is a sense of connection. We have to actually feel like we have human connection with the people we're doing the activity with or just in our lives in general. You know, again, thinking through my band director lens, if I go to a football game and all my students are up in the stands and I look and there's one kid that's kind of standing away from everyone else and not talking to anybody else, that kid's not going to stay in band. They don't feel connected. They don't feel relatedness. And so I think it's important that we go out of our way inside of our classrooms to make it feel like a community. That's one of the things that's almost universally said about music programs is it felt like a family that we were working together. But there's lots of ways to undermine this. You know, I thought one of the quickest ways to undermine this is, you know, if you have high stakes competition, which we have in Texas. So if we win this competition, we get to go on this special, really cool trip. And there's a kid in your section that isn't doing very well. Well, you may not see them as a friend and an ally that you can help. You may see them as an obstacle for your success. And that's a natural reaction to that situation. And it can undermine relatedness. And then the last one is autonomy. And this one's the hardest in large ensemble music making. Because large ensemble music making, as we've designed it, is director-centered. Literally, we, we put them all in arcs and center them on the director. You know, it's not necessarily student-centered. And you have to go out of your way to actually give the kids some control and choice about what they're doing. Um, and it can be done. There's lots of ways to bring the kids into all the different parts of decision-making for large ensembles. Like I would challenge you to come up with a list of very many things that the students can't actually have input on. You know, uh, you just have to be okay with them making choices that you might not have made for them actually to have ownership and stakes in it. Um, and that can be hard, especially if we're designed in such a way that we ha- need things to be really narrow and fit into a box in order to get the right number of points so that we can win and progress our careers. Um, so I, like I said, everything relates back. But I find when I focus on these three things that ultimately everything about my job is better, everything about my student performance is better, the environment feels better. Um, And I think in a lot of places where even people are focused on competitive results, their competitive results can ultimately better whenever the students actually feel this. But I would just argue that that's the least important metric um, and the most visible somehow, which is problematic. Yeah. Well, and and I I feel like at the end of the day, it it comes, it boils down to how, how, how do you define achievement, right? And and especially, you know, in, in our area of the world, I mean, achievement is you did better than somebody else did. <laughs> and, and, but, and, and as you just said, that that's ironically reflected within the ensemble a lot of times as well, um, because of, you know, whether it's, you know, chairs or, or, you know, UIL scores or, or whatever that may be. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, I, um, man, it feels like this just happened, but this was, you know, months ago now. Um, I, I sat in on, uh, on, uh, Kara's, uh, uh, her UIL, it was pre UIL. It wasn't actual UIL, uh, but it was the pre UIL performance. And so, you know, they did the whole thing as if it were the, you know, practicing doing the, the legit UIL, they go into the practice room, warm up, and then they go in and it, I, I just, it had been so long since I had been in that experience and I'm sitting in there and I didn't join choir until high school. Um, and, but just, and I, I might've mentioned this in a previous podcast episode. I, I can't remember if, if I did, I'll edit this part out, but sitting in there and just feeling the, the tension in the room with, with these middle, like middle school girls. Right. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking it, it's, it's really crazy how you know, I can understand how th- this could be beneficial in some ways because it, it gives, it kind of forces some, some in- significance into, into what you're doing. Um, but at the end of the day, it, I, I don't know if it's, if it's quite the right, the right avenue for that, because it, I mean, I, I, I don't want to see people gearing up for a, a, a important, perf- a quote unquote, significant, important performance. And they all look terrified, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, I, here's the thing. There's a lot of things about 
our contest structures. And again, in Texas, we have the most regressive structures. You know, for example, in almost no other state, like there's maybe a handful, are your contest results published and archived on a website. So in Texas, they when you go apply for a job, they look up your UIL history and you have to answer for when you got a three or a four at contest. You know, well, was there's a lot to that story. You know, what happened? Was it a small school band and the trumpet player busted his lip before they got on the bus? You know, or did you go somewhere where they'd never been to contest in 40 years and you started the band from scratch and your district insisted you went to contest, even though the, it was completely inappropriate literature wise for your students? And also, if you're a music educator and you're trying to have a successful career, why would you ever teach anywhere where kids really need you and getting that first division would be hard if it's going to be held over your head for the rest of your career? But yet we do that. You know, I, I think that's actually unethical. Um, it's actually kept me from getting my TMAA certification. I went to it and they were talking, uh, you know, about stuff and they said something about, you know, being down on talking, talking bad about UIL and things. And I'm like, I, I can't authentically do this because I don't agree with a lot of the things we're doing. Now, a lot of it, I think, is a great opportunity. But I think we just always go one step too far. So so we go, hey, what if we got all the students together and we brought all the bands together to one location and they could all hear each other perform? And, oh, let's get these really qualified directors to listen to them and give feedback. Oh, I'm loving this. This is so wonderful. Um, and, you know, and it's an excuse to get the kids off campus and the directors can get feedback, too. I go, oh, this is great. And then they say, and let's make them play really specific music off of a list. And let's take and rank them all or rate them all uh, and then give them medals or not. And then let's judge all the directors and the students off of this. And I go, you went too far. You went past the point where this was helpful. And we could like, we literally made this up. Like, this is just something we invented. We could do all sorts of other things. Like one of the ones I really thought is keep the structure the same, but like in many other states, require that the groups watch a couple other bands. And then get rid of the ratings because they are pointless, but allow the judges to recognize like, you know, really like this trumpet section was amazing, you know, like we do at State Wind Festival and give UIL medals to all the trumpet section or, or something like that if you really needed that. And I think that part, you know, is completely optional. But then, you know, what if the director provides this judging panel with a portfolio that has their class schedules, the number of students that are enrolled, the number of electives that are offered, and the judges go through and write a letter to the administration saying, you know, hey, we're noticing that your schedule is really terrible for this band program, and like the, the, it's keeping students from being able to be in it, you know, and all of these things. And it actually, you know, we, we looked at the rest of the state, and the support that you're giving your band is in the lower 10%. Not your band director's in the lower 10% because we can't evaluate that in 15 minutes. But we can look at all the factors at your school and go, you're not providing enough for your music programs and have an official letter from, you know, uh, like active teachers about that. Boy, what a gift that would be to all those directors, you know? Uh, anyway, I just, that's just, that's something I thought of that I, I wish I'd had that at a lot of times in my career when I was at a place where I was being kicked around, you know, because I was the young guy and they could do whatever they wanted. And had I had a thing there, you know, anyway, I'm just saying we could do so many other things. We could take these existing systems and make them so much more equitable. I mean, take state marching contest. Like it is an arms race for how much money you can spend. Um, you know, when you look through results for even like all region and stuff, like a lot of times we are actively celebrating privilege. Uh, it's, it, it's not, you know, we say it's merit. We say it worked hard. And listen, if you don't work hard or your director's terrible, you can crash any amount of support. But if you have all the support in the world and you have quality teachers, you're always going to do better than people that have almost no support and have quality teachers. And that's the things we should be trying to fix in our profession, not trying to weed out directors that are no good. That's what their administration is for, not the systems we create to help each other. Yeah. Oh, beautifully said, beautifully said. And so I, I want to go going off of that. We, we've talked a lot about obviously a lot of things that are, aren't, aren't, quite, aren't quite right with the systems we have set in place in the music education world. What do you see coming down the road in the future? Uh, I mean, this can be good or bad, but um, how do you see it impacting, you know, us as professional musicians and music educators, um, what do you see coming and what do you think we might need to do to adapt going forward you know, for better or worse? 
Yeah. So I, I, first of all, you know, the big thing that's, you know, making the news right now is artificial intelligence. And uh, we, like the whole music industry got really shaken up by the fact that we went from selling albums for a hundred years to music being absolutely worthless over the course of a decade. Where when you walk up to a student right now and you go, hey, how much did you pay for music in the last year? And they go, pay for music? Like they don't understand the question you ask them. Like, you know, that's a big deal. Artificial intelligence is going to be really similar. We're, we're seeing this with text right now. And there's so many questions about it. You know, some of it is ethics. Like, do we want to live in a world where 95% of all the music you hear was written by a machine? Yeah, yeah. You know, we are barreling towards that world. Like it's going to happen. It's 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 a matter of time right now. Like I the 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 technology doesn't even need to get very much better than what it is right now for text. We apply it to music and good lord, that's a perfectly usable marching band arrangement. Or, you know, that that's all really good. So there there's an ethics question that we do have to grapple with. But the problem is, you know, it's gonna be here. Like one hundred percent it is going to be here. It's going to be here very soon. Um, I'm worried about it from society level because we've kind of just accepted that somehow unfettered capitalism is going to provide everybody a job and a living and that it's going to raise all the ships and we're all going to live happily ever after. And, you know, I, I don't know that that's the case. I, I, I really have a lot of concern that a lot of things that people do in order to sustain themselves is just not going to be a viable career path. And we're talking about like white collar jobs. Uh, so there's there's a lot of things that we do need to be keeping an eye on. And there's mm-hmm. things that can be done right now. Like we can take and start voting for laws that require that artificially intelligence created work has to be attributed to artificial intelligence. So like, you know, if you are looking at an image, you have to be able to like click on the image and go in and you can see that it has been created by artificial intelligence so that people that want to be choosy can be choosy. But then what we're going to see a lot of that is really exciting is collaborations between humans and artificial intelligence. And you have to ask yourself, at what point is this just the next creative tool? So, you know, imagine being able to, you know, sit down at a computer and say, hey, I would like you to write a 30 minute symphony and I want accordion to to be the solo instrument. Like make it make it. Let's just do a concerto. Let's do a 15 minute concerto, an accordion concerto. Um, and I want these tempos and these styles and it writes it all out. And then you sit there and you go measure by measure. Go, I don't like this measure. Let's change it to this. Let's try this. Let's try that to the point that you've put your human fingerprint on every single part of that. But all the mechanical process of deciding the chord voicing and typing in all the notes, you know, that's been done by a computer. But you've made all the decisions well who wrote the music like if if you copy and paste a french horn part over onto a saxophone part when you're orchestrating you i mean did you write that or did the machine write it you know what part of the mechanical processes do we need or don't need that's really exciting for me as someone who can't stay focused on anything for more than 10 minutes i could create so much so i always got great ideas and no time to execute them this is great for me but it may be really bad for like humanity. So, uh, yeah, that, I don't know that I'm, I feel like a lot of this, this conversation has been these really negative things. I really am very hopeful that we can solve these things, but we're going to have to start paying attention to them, taking them seriously and figuring out what our values are. Like, what do we value in music making? What do we value in music education? Those things may not even be the same. So I know a lot of people that if they could get a customized marching show for free, they'd be all over that, they, no matter how it happened, because literally that's something that's never been an opportunity for their students. Um, so I'm I'm really curious. I think we do have to be open to adapting these tools because I don't think there's a way to bury them. Oh, yeah. Um, we just have to, to, you know, come up with an ethical standard for where it is. Um, so, yeah. Well, and it's, it's interesting that, I mean, it's, it, it is crazy how, how much it's, it's, blown up in, in the past year um, not even the past year just the past few months um uh just how how quickly it's it's come up and and it's like i mean if 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 it's already gotten this this big this quickly it's like i can't imagine what that's going to be going forward um you know i've been thinking a lot about it uh, as a composer basically everything you just said right is is the is the worry right for someone like me as a composer it's like well what is that going to mean for someone like me and i've really been thinking kind of like what you said the, the value of what of what is being created and why and uh, part of me 
so, something I kind of see as possibly a benefit of something like this is it's going to kind of it could increase the value of uh, art that that does come from humans, right? Amidst a, a world where it's made by machines. I, I think about like, uh, you know, hand-sewn quilts. I mean, there's a reason hand-sewn quilts are so much more expensive and valuable than one that you just get, a, you know, that was just produced in a factory. Um, and I and I think people are going to be forced to decide, well, wh- why why is this piece of art or this piece of music valuable to me? Is this something I just want to use or is this something I want to um, relate to or understand? Is this something I want to to connect to as a human versus just a product that that just was just came out of nothing? <laughs> M- music as function or music as art? Yes, exactly. Right? So you know, I read a book on this recently. If I ever remember what it is, I'll I'll message it to you. But it was talking about you know the things that we should be doing if we want to be smart about this is number one do our best to de-algorithm ourselves, you know, to to be actually actively making choices instead of just making the choices our phones throw in front of us, uh, you know, to, to, to do that. Because actually there's a lot of work that has gone in to basically mind control us into making certain decisions through our social media, through our devices. Um, it's really uncomfortable to think about. So, well, you know, start actively making decisions and thinking about things and then start leaning into what makes us human. So they, they, uh, this book talked about the maker's mark and how important that is, that actually the imperfections in our human-made goods are part of what make us really value them. Um, and I think that's going to be true for our artwork. I, you know, I also wonder just how much it's going to... Um, it, the, the we are already to a point where who a composer is as a person is as important as their music to most people. And I don't think that's wrong because literally I could listen to new music by composers I've never heard of for every moment for the rest of my life. And I would hear music that was greater than anything Mozart or Beethoven ever wrote because there is more music being written now than ever before. And so I think in a certain way, we're already to that point where, you know, deciding what your style is and making those decisions are way more important than actually handwriting out all of the notes even. And so I, I mean, I'm excited to be living to see this. I sent chat GPT to my dad and the text he sent back was, I didn't think I would live long enough to see this. Yeah. Wow. That, 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 that was, that yeah. was the message he sent back because it really does feel very science fiction. But if we don't start talking about this and if we don't start talking about as a society, about what we're going to do about income distribution. I mean, we're we're in a world where there is abundance. There is more than enough food to feed every human being in the world. There is more than enough clothing. We fill it full of landfills every year. We could solve ha- housing. We could solve all the big problems. There are enough resources to solve. We are just unwilling to move those resources around. Um, and that's a really scary conversation, but I think whenever people look back at us in a hundred years, they're going to say so many people needlessly died and suffered just because we were unwilling to create policies that would help take care of everybody. Um, and th- that's, yeah, I-, I think they'll think that. And I think they'll think, Oh my God, you guys ate a lot of meat. I think those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I definitely do. That's for sure. <laughs> oh, uh, me too. Yeah. Perfect. Well, so, so with all that being said, before we, before we wrap up here, you know, with everything we've talked about, um, a lot of, a lot of things that to, to definitely think about and, um, y- you know, really examine about, you know, how and why we do what we do as music educators, um, for anyone listening out there that's listening to this right now, anyone that's a, you know, band director, choir director, and they're, they're listening to all of this. And, um, maybe it kind of feels like they, they just had a, just a swath of information, just kind of just like dumped on them. A lot of it kind of scary for being honest. Um, you know, what, what I feel great about that. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, but that's okay. Um, what, what would you say to them as far as, um, just going forward, uh, what advice would you give to them as we, as we go forward into this, uh, this new, uh, honestly, what's going to be a new age of, of music making? Yeah. So I think, and I've, I've heard there's data on this, but I haven't looked at it myself that there is more music making happening on earth by more people than what there has ever been in the history of the world. Music is accessible to more people. And a lot of kids are making it on their phones and a lot of it isn't classical music. Um, but I 
personally don't hold anything sacred. Like I, there are very few things that I say have to be, and that's helped me a lot. And I think that's really, really important. I always look and go, what's necessary. And for me, it always comes back to music. In my music classroom, the only thing that has to happen is music making. Like that's it. Does performance have to happen? I mean, I want it to happen. I think there's value there. Does it have to happen? No. There's kids that can study music without performing. There's so many ways that we can do all of this. But what is always true in my experience is the kids are capable of far more than what they believe they are, and also far more than what we usually expect of them, especially when it comes to them making decisions and owning their learning. And it requires a lot of work. And I I wish we had another hour to talk about all the little strategies to get (laughs) students to make decisions and own things. But, you know, if you bring them into the conversation in a realistic way, if you always center what you're doing on how amazing music is and the value of it, you will have so many students that desire it so deeply and so passionately. And if you use that passion, that, you know, push to get them to love music from the inside, instead of using the pressure, the external pressures we're all trained to use, you know, be that chair test or contest or treats or grades or whatever else, eventually all those things go away. And the only reason left to make music is because you love it. The AI, they're taking and they're writing all the big music, but I'm going to keep writing music because I have to write music. It's the only thing that lasts no matter what happens in the future. And so to my thought, it's the main thing worth doing. It's what my mission is, is to help kids discover that for themselves in whatever way that happens and to use every single tool at my disposal to give them that opportunity. Oh, that's great. It, at, at, the, at the end of the day, it's just a deeper purpose. It's a deeper purpose than just the product. As we said before, it's the, the as, as cliche as it is, it's it's the, the journey, not necessarily destination, right? <laughs> um, well, and I'm not, uh, just to be clear, I'm not against quality. I'm not yeah. against there being a good product. I just think the way you get that is by instilling, endorsing, and using passion and not actually being all focused on what that product is or exactly what it looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, well, Steven, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, before we go, uh, for anyone listening that might want to connect with you or, or get to know you better, um, how can they reach you and how can they find you? Yeah. So I've got a website. It's uh, steventcox.com. My name is spelled with a P-H-S-T-E-P-H-E-N, um, is stephentcox.com. And I, there's a form there. It goes right to my email. And I, I like talking, as you can tell. <laughs> I'm a loud mouth. So any emails, you know, I'll, I'll respond to and get back to people. And um, yeah, that's the easiest way to do that. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Stephen, thank you very much. Um, this has been a great conversation. Um, We'll have to have you on again. I mean, we I feel like we just kind of grazed the surface, the the tip of the iceberg of a lot of these conversations. And um, I know our viewers are going to enjoy it. So um, until next time. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Beyond the Measure, a podcast for music educators. We hope you learned something that will help you stress less about how to teach so that you can focus more on who you're teaching. If you enjoyed the episode, Please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and share this podcast with other music educators. See you in the next one.